the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book 5, Critical Spring. Chapter 8, Recon and Exchange, Part 1. Even though we were standing right beside the co-op when the lines formed, it took us two hours to get inside, Susan said. Two hours! How long are those other people going to have to wait? I told you it was a good idea to have me along, Aaron gloated. They didn't ask any questions. We just showed them our day passes, and they handed Uncle Paul, uh, I mean, Father, dear, the stack of money. Am I a genius or what? Paul held the crisp ten, ten-share notes tightly in his hand as they slowly pushed their way through the crowded aisles of the co-op. I've never seen so many people in here, and so much actual stuff on the shelves, said Aaron. And these boxes, they have real stuff in them. This place looks like a real store. Well, it certainly makes an excellent first impression, Susan thought. Stock the shelves with FEMA's warehouse supplies when you hand out free money. People always fall for free stuff. It certainly looks like there's plenty to go around. Paul held up an MRE from a stack of the brown plastic pillow shapes. The small black print on the wrapper identified it as Western Omelette Breakfast. The handwritten placard above the shelf announced that the MREs were ten shares each. Ten meals for a household for a week? muttered Susan. That's nuts. Maybe the staples are better. Come on. She led the other two against the lava flow of humanity. She held Aaron's hand to avoid getting separated. How about these? Aaron snatched a boxed meal as they passed a stack of boxes. Inside the plain white box was a small, pull-top can with a generic white label, corned beef hash. Beside the can sat a granola bar, a packet of raisins, and four cheesy crackers in cellophane. Eight shares, Aaron read the sign aloud and scratched her head. That doesn't seem like a much better deal. Put it back. We can do better. Susan pulled them toward the back of the store. She hoped the staples would be better priced. The low wooden shelves held five pound sacks of flour, five shares each. Five pounds of sugar was twenty shares. Susan sighed. A hundred shares certainly won't buy a week's worth of food for a household. Still, we can do a lot with some flour and sugar. Oh, and there's bags of salt, too. There were no shopping bags. Everyone had to carry their purchases home in their arms. Most shoppers found the task easily managed. One hundred shares didn't go very far. Uncle Rupert's wife was the last to rejoin the rest of the Ames clan at Nathan's wagon. She had opted for flour and sugar, too. Rupert bristled about the news of the new laws prohibiting barter with neighbors. He had grand plans to barter with the services of his steam tractor. There was much to think about with the rules change. Adele gushed thanks to Nathan for offering to give an old woman a ride home. She clutched her few groceries tightly. The Ames clan was quiet. Adele supplied enough conversation to compensate for everyone. Susan looked forward to the ride down Vernon Street, past the railroad causeway, and beyond. She wanted to survey the new security measures that might be in place. 
I tried to tell Edna that she needed to come today, but she wouldn't listen. That woman can be so stubborn sometimes. Now she's missed out on her free hundred bucks. Oh, wait, uh, here we're not supposed to call them bucks anymore, uh, are we? Did bucks have slaves? Uh, I still don't get that. Uh, anyhow, I'm sure she's going to. Susan's attention drifted away from Adele's monologue. Every quarter mile or so, two soldiers stood between the road and the river. Perhaps Balaam expected some of the assembled people to make a rush for the border with their newly purchased FEMA food and supply the evil vipers. The river was high and running fast with the spring melt. The water would be icy cold. Susan doubted she could swim it with her gear, even a pared-down version of her gear. She could make a raft, but the odds are she would get soaked on top of a small crude raft, and it would be slower than swimming. She needed a boat, maybe a canoe. Where was she going to find a boat? And even if she did find a boat, where would she hide it until she was ready? You think that was wrong, too, don't you? asked Adele. She stared silently, waiting for Susan to reply. Susan smiled weakly. Uh, oh, um, uh, definitely. She had no idea what she had just agreed with. Yeah, darn right it's wrong. This is my house up here at the fork, young man. Adele patted on Nathan's back. You can just let me off by my mailbox. Oh, you're all so very kind to a poor old widow woman. She hopped down and scooped her boxes and bags into her arms again. She waved with her less encumbered hand. Take the back roads, asked Nathan. Adds maybe eight miles, but less uh, soldier supervision. Uh, could we go back up along the river? Susan asked. She held an apologetic grin. She wanted more reconnaissance time. Ah, uh, sure, but I'm going to take Brook Road over to Guilford to avoid the checkpoints. Easier route for the horses, too. Nathan slapped the reins on the horses' backs and turned them sharply left. The wooden wagon bed creaked as it flexed over the crown of the road. Susan waited at the top of the hill, where the road from Rupert, Nathan, and Elijah's houses teed into the road from Paul's and Sandy's houses. What's taking him so long? Between getting to Adele's house, taking her to town and back, then the trip home, it sounded like an all-day errand. She wanted to get an early start. A horse whinny and a clatter of hooves on gravel announced Paul's approach before he could be seen. Nathan's brown horse, Donner, galloped into view around the bend at the foot of the hill. The two-wheeled cart rigged behind Donner bounced and slid around the corner. Paul held on tight with one hand and worked the reins with the other hand as if he was in a windstorm. Donner veered right, near the ditch, then turned left, cut across the road. Paul finally got Donner centered in the road and slowed down. Susan smiled. She decided not to tease Paul about his rookie driving. He knew beef cattle, not cart horses. She knew her own driving would be far worse. Besides, Paul was doing her a huge favor in taking Adele to town and back so that she could cash in her dollars and so Susan could check out the river security. It's poor etiquette to tease a man who is helping you and others. 
Donner made too tight of a turn at the top of the hill, causing one of the cart's tires to bump through the shallow ditch. Paul pulled Donner to a stop with the rig stretched diagonally across the road. Paul blew out a sigh of relief to have come to any kind of a controlled stop. He quickly shook off his worried expression and replaced it with one of cool and calm. His little nod said, Where to, ma'am? Susan wiped away her amused smile and adopted a similarly business-like expression. Thank you, Paul. Shall we take the back roads down to Adele's and avoid the checkpoints? Paul nodded. Susan stepped over the diagonal shaft of wood that was the anchoring end of the cart's left shaft. She sat on the vinyl seat, repurposed from a minivan. The trailer's little leaf spring squeaked as she stepped aboard. The wire mesh trailer had been someone's lawnmower trailer before the outage. Nathan had cut off the trailer's tongue, added the two harness shafts, and a dashboard of reclaimed lumber. The cart was an inelegant-looking vehicle, but it sufficed for light-duty trips and only required one horse to pull it. Donner was old enough to be even-tempered in harness, but not so old as to have trouble learning new skills. He took well to the cart, although it was not obvious with Paul's neophyte driving skills. South Road down to uh, Guilford? Susan asked as they bounced through a pothole. She tried not to make her tight grip on the side rail look apparent. Staying seated during the bounces was a constant challenge. Paul nodded. He was too focused on the road ahead to take much notice of Susan's grip. This was Paul's first extended trip with Donner and the cart. Donner, for his part, seemed to be quickly learning how to ignore Paul's micromanaging the reins and simply trot down the center of the road. Paul was looking less tense as he realized that Donner wasn't going to go careening into the ditch. You realize, of course, Susan said, this is kind of a long trip and I'm going to be conversational. Paul nodded, but pointed with his eyes toward Donner and held up the reins. Yes, Susan nodded in agreement. Donner's a handful. I imagine it takes a lot of concentration to drive this thing. I get that, and I'll try not to talk your arm off. <laughs> Still, fair warning. She thought she saw Paul let out a sigh. Perhaps not. It's really nice of you to take Adele to town and back. I worried about her. Well, actually a lot of people, but she's one I know. I mean, this winter was brutal, even on the young and the strong. How did a little old woman, living alone, manage to survive? Paul didn't look like he was listening as he slowed Donner to make a right turn. Paul tugged on the reins in nervous twitches, too sharp, too straight, a little to the left. Donner turned his head to cast an eye back at Paul as if to say, Dude, I know how to stay on the road, okay? Do horses roll their eyes? Susan wondered. At the intersection in West Brattle, with the dead gas station, Paul and Donner executed a less frantic-looking right turn. Both man and horse seemed pleased at the outcome. The road south was rather straight, requiring little inputs from the reins. Donner trotted down the middle of the way. Not much for leafing out yet in the forest, Susan said. Only the birch and little maples. You can still see quite a ways into the woods. I noticed all these abandoned houses when we came up this way last time. It's kind of odd. She glanced at Paul to see if he would ask her what was odd. He only peered briefly at one of the houses as they passed. Susan shrugged. 
Her comment wasn't enough to start a conversation, apparently. I mean, she continued, when I was a kid down in Greenfield, there were already two Vermonts. I knew there was the old Vermont with its crusty farmers and crotchety mountain men. And then there was the new Vermont with younger folks from New York or Boston who yearned for the peaceful, natural life. She made air quotes around natural and life. They left the cities so that they could feel all green and in tune with nature. You know the kind. They preach at everyone about how people should have a smaller carbon footprint and recycle and eat organic. But now that things have to be natural, where are they? They aren't out here living authentically natural. Don't you think that's kind of odd? Susan looked at Paul. She felt her statement was long enough and profound enough to merit some comment. She waited. He needed to learn how to converse. Paul glanced at her. She was still looking at him. Yeah, odd, he said, keeping his eyes on the road. Susan looked away and chuckled. Is that all you've got? It was a pitiful attempt at conversation, but it was a start. Like, look over there, Susan pointed to the right. Two young boys were swatting at the flanks of a half-dozen dairy cows, trying to coax them out of a pen and into a pasture of mostly brown stubble. The cows refused to move. The farms around here are still active, old Vermont. The people who worked the land grew the food. They're still here, probably the same as they've been doing for a couple of hundred years. She glanced at Paul. He kept his eyes on the road. I mean, Sandy and Carl, they're still planning to put in their usual corn crop with the help of Rupert's Iron Monster. You've still got your beef cattle and expecting two calves. Nathan has his little dairy herd. His dad has that huge garden. This outage might have slowed you guys down a bit, but it wasn't the end of the world as you knew it. For a lot of these new Vermonters, it was the end of their world. Susan decided to give Paul a break from the pressure of keeping up a conversation. He had his hands full navigating the turns through Guilford and the occasional pedestrian. Donner's tack didn't include blinders, so he was prone to distractions. Despite that, Paul and Donner made a graceful left turn after the little bridge and onto Brook Road. Paul sat a little taller with his success. He flipped the reins and made sounds, perhaps because that's what buggy drivers did in the old Western films. Whether it was Paul's more confident driving or the fact that Brook Road was a gentle downhill slope, Donner picked up the pace to a light trot. His hooves made the classic clip-clop, clip-clop sounds on the pavement. Brook Road followed the twists and turns of what was usually a sleepy little brook. The spring runoff had turned the brook into a small whitewater river. The water splashed and foamed over the rocks in a great hurry to get down the hill. The road passed under tall concrete piers that held up the I-91 overpass. From the ground, the piers looked abnormally tall, as if they were preventing anyone from touching the bridges. The columns reminded Susan of grade school and the long arms of the older girls who would snatch her lunchbox and hold it high out of reach. Susan hated that keep-away game. She remembered crying the first time it happened. That only encouraged them to do it again. After many such encounters, she resolved to silently stand there, arms folded, and wait for the game to be no fun for the bullies. They threw her lunchbox in a last effort to get a reaction from their victim. 
she refused to run after it. They would get no further satisfaction from her. The mean girls found someone new to torment. Young Susan enjoyed her new invisibility. Despite being the town she grew up in, Susan never felt connected to her classmates or the school. Other than Melissa, she had no real friends. The rest were more like co-inhabitants. School was merely a place. The way people talked nostalgically about their alma mater, she had expected to develop some bonds at college. That didn't happen. Her dorm mates were too interested in parties, which seemed to boil down to staying out very late and coming back to the residence hall to throw up. As gross as it was, they must have liked it. They would go and do it again the next weekend. The professors were like doctors with only five minutes to see you. College was just another place. Jobs after college were nothing more than jobs. Co-workers tended to be whiners or shirkers that she wanted nothing to do with, or scheming climbers who wanted nothing to do with her. The workplace was just a place. The men she dated were obviously focused on their one and only goal in life, which was not conversation. There was no belonging there. After Mark, the stupidest choice of a boyfriend in her entire life, had kicked her out and she was living alone in Somerville, she was surprised that she didn't feel any more alone than before. She was still a woman without a country, an anonymous traveler through someone else's hometown. Living in Cheshire was different. It did feel like home. She lived in a house where everyone treated her like a member of their extended family. Margaret took time to teach her cooking and gardening skills. The townsfolk she encountered were so deferential. Walter, Jen, Robert, Mr. Landers, all of them, treated her like a special guest. They seemed genuinely glad that she was there. Then there was Martin. It was hard not to have feelings for your rescuer. But Erin was a silly girl for always thinking in concepts like one true love all the time. She read far too many teen romance novels. Reality was nothing like a novel. Reality was nuanced. Reality was complicated. She knew Martin found her attractive. Several times she caught him looking at her face. His looks were never the mental undressing gape of her dismal dating life. Martin was trying to look her in the eyes, without getting caught. When she sensed him looking, she liked to suddenly glance up. He would quickly pretend to be looking at something else. His blush, however, betrayed him. For as often as they played that gotcha game, he never got good at it. She always caught him. Yet, even though she knew he liked her, he took great pains to avoid anything untoward. What man does that anymore? Maybe only in Aaron's romance novels. Martin was staunchly faithful to his wife, Margaret, which seemed almost anachronistic. Nothing as convenient as a character in a book. The ideal man who just happened to be single when the heroine came along. No, life was not so tidy as in novels. Still, the memories of his getting tongue-tied around her made her smile. Cheshire was the first place that she felt she belonged, where people wanted her to be there. Her life since leaving for Operation Longbow had been a resumption of her rootless lifestyle. Several nights in a basement, some boards on bricks for a bed, makeshift shelters in the woods. Now camped out in Sandy's middle house attic, she was, once again, a woman without a country. 
the pace of Donner's hoof-clops slowed down, snapping Susan out of her introspection. They had reached the intersection with Vernon Road. Through the leafless trees, Susan could see the low rolling hills of New Hampshire across the river. She heaved a sigh. So near, and yet... A soldier stood across the road, watching them make their turn south. Only one soldier? Susan muttered softly. That Balaam guy must have something else. Mm-hmm, said Paul. Susan squared her shoulders and sat up. She was on a reconnaissance mission, no more getting lost in thoughts. Her plan was to check out the new security that Balaam spoke of. Maybe there were holes that she could exploit. She needed to spot a place where she could hide a small boat or a canoe, assuming she could find one. As Vernon Road gently rose in elevation, she peered back over her shoulder at the fingers of marshland between the railroad embankment and the river. One long peninsula of marsh looked promising. It had several inlets, with bushes growing on both sides. Oh, I bet I could hide a canoe in one of those, yeah, if I had a canoe. Then she noticed the thin white poles along the railroad tracks. They stood about four feet tall, with a small blue box at the top. The poles stood about thirty yards apart from each other. Now that she noticed them, she could see that they stretched all the way back toward Brattleboro. They also extended out of sight toward Vernon. Well, those are new. I wonder what they are. They passed another soldier, his post at the crest of the gentle hill that gave him a good view of the road both north and south. After the peak of the road, Susan could see the river again. Bays and inlets interrupted the marsh on the far side of the river. Hey, look, ducks, Susan pointed low in the sky. Migrating back up for spring. When they left, the power was on. I bet they're going to regret coming back. People are going to hunt them, don't you think? I wonder how they'll hunt them, since guns are almost illegal around here. A dozen mallards made a wide turn east, with their wings curved down in glide mode. After they had all skimmed in for a landing in the still water of a little bay, they splashed and chattered to each other. Susan wondered if a throwing stick would work on ducks swimming in a backwater. Whether she hit one or not, how would she retrieve her stick? She would have to think about that some more. Paul nudged Susan's elbow and pointed with the tip of his head. Susan heard the unmistakable buzz of a drone. For a moment, she felt panic like an animal spotted by a predator. Yes, another two-part chapter. This one turned out to be 46 minutes raw. I thought it might get a lot shorter after editing out all of the coughs and ahems. <clears throat> I had some phlegmy allergy thing going on that day. But to my surprise, the editing took out only three minutes. So this one was still a two-parter. You might have noticed that last time I included a snippet at the end of part one to lead off part two. I thought that might help for orientation. Did it? Or was it confusing? Some of you may have noticed that you got the last episode early. Did you notice? When I went to schedule the release date and time, somehow I clicked something I shouldn't have and Podbean posted it immediately. I noticed that right away and fixed it in less than 30 seconds. But in just that 30 seconds, there were 25 downloads. Wow, that was fast. Did you notice if you were one of the 25? 
want to give a shout out to the most recent cool kids who bought me coffees at Buy Me a Coffee. Thanks to Brian, Mike H., Anne, and Chris. You guys are cool. Now, if you want to be cool like them, visit my Buy Me a Coffee page and click on the word support on the right. I thought it'd be fun to change that button to say something like, I'm cool. But I couldn't find a way for Buy Me a Coffee to let me change that. <laughs> oh well. But seriously, I do appreciate the support from all you faithful listeners and monthly members. I'll be back again next week with part two.